Right, hello everyone. Uh, this is Jamie. Peter's uh, decided to hand the reins over to me this time. Uh, obviously, <laughs> not scary at all. Um, I'm delighted to welcome the absolutely fantastic and, uh, well, quite magical actually, uh, Bob and Barn, the composers behind the Medieval series. And uh, as a lot of you will know, they are not just uh, limited to VGM, uh, having scored for TV and film as well, which is... Um, which is quite incredible, really, um, and I'm very lucky to be able to uh, to talk to them. So, uh, so how are you both? We're good, thank Wonderful. you very much. Thank- Love to be here. Thank you for that very nice introduction yeah. as well. No problem. Um, right, now, first of all, well, I've had my mind blown a little bit because uh, in doing research for this, I, uh, I re- uh, well, I realised that Chris Sorrell, who you worked with uh, on Medieval, He's uh, he's actually the creator of James Pond, which um, which was actually one of the first memorable games I ever played. Indeed, he was. Yeah. Uh, one of the um, things about Chris, and of course, you two composed the score for Medieval. Um, but um, if I understand correctly, Chris had quite a big um, role mm-hmm. to play with that as well. He created a, um, a patch of sorts, um, essentially middleware before it was uh, middleware. He's a legend. Uh, he yeah. helped contribute towards the overall audio landscape uh, just wanted to ask how did you two uh, collaborate with him um, on that well we we sat down barn and i and we we had some sort of rudimentary ideas of what you know a piece of software like that might be able to do and you know we were sound designing the game as well as writing the music so um it was really more for for that side of it initially and um we 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 came up with a few very basic ideas like pitch offsets for footsteps and things like that we had a tiny amount of sound run to play with and you know we couldn't really afford the luxury of having lots and lots of different variations of footsteps stored in in memory we had to get as much as we possibly could out of a very small memory footprint so uh excuse the pun so uh we uh we decided that we take just one foot footstep for example and uh you know just a, just a small handful of, of metal hits but provide the variation through pitch offsets so we went to Chris and we threw our ideas at him and I can't say that we, we weren't hugely optimistic that they'd have time or the inclination to do something but Chris Sorrell being Chris Sorrell um, he took it all on board and then single-handedly went away and, and wrote this amazing precursor to, to middleware that not only provided the pitch offsets that we asked for but then did like a million times more than anything we'd ever anticipated because that's how Chris works you know you give him an idea and then he multiplies it by a thousand and that's exactly what happened there and it was we were amazed when we saw what he'd done um we could we could modulate sounds uh with with pitch bend so within one cycle of the sound we could modulate the sound up and down with pitch but then we could loop the sound and then pitch it over time as well. So it was kind of like a double uh, pitch modulation within the lifetime of the sound. So for example, the health fountain is a sound which is made out of um, some of the other sounds in, in the game, actually the spirit's outgoing sound. And most people would not know that by listening to it because it's it's so far removed from the original source, but incredibly valuable for us back in the day because now we've got two sound effects from um, you know the real estate of, of of one sound effect, which is absolutely incredible, and exactly what we needed back 
back in that time. It's less of an issue these days because you know you have the luxury of of sound ram and so on, but but back then it was it was it was a lifeline. I think when we jump in and say I think it was uh, Mark because we just worked on a game called Fogger, which uh, there was an audio. We managed to get one of the oh, I suppose one of the first kind of audio programmers. There was a guy in the office who actually had a bit of a, an interest in doing audio stuff. So because the PlayStation One had a very limited out of five hundred twelve k of sound ram, and <clears throat> so you had a, had a pool of sounds which were what we call the generic sounds which were used on every single level and every single level itself also had a, had a few level specific sounds but as Bob rightly said one of the things which you wanted to do was to try and effectively get as much money out of the old rope as we possibly could so we're going to talk about pitch offset or pitch offset so you, you can have a when you when you walk across any, any surface uh, the pitch the, the sound of the footsteps will never stay exactly the same. They'll either be you'll have a scuff, it'll be loud, it'll be quieter. It'll be there'll be a lot of variation when the monks it. But when you have effectively the sound equivalent of having effectively one or two different sounds for it, it becomes very artificial in the way it sounds. And so therefore, how do you make it sound more organic, more realistic? <clears throat> so Bob talks about the fact that you have pitch offsets. So basically, what you do is you have a kind of a center pitch, and you could have a, a, a variety of where it would go up and down. Uh, within a, within a, a defined parameter of a few semitones up and down, randomly chosen, so it'll either go, boop, 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 you know, slightly more varied that sound, and also a volume of, volume offsets as well. The same thing, so the, the sound wouldn't be exactly the same volume every time. Otherwise, footsteps effectively become some sound, sound incredibly robotic and incredibly artificial. But this way, it's not, it's no, obviously nowhere near as good as having the real sounds. But it's a, but it's a lot, it's a kind of halfway house to try to make a sound more realistic. Another thing, another sound you had were like wind. Wind is a classic example you get in the game to try and it's help, it help emphasises uh, how, high, how, how high the player is within a level. Of the, the lower it is, obviously you don't really hear it, it's more like kind of a background noise. But the further up you get, the wind becomes more blustery. So how do you do that? What we, we did end up doing was having a, a very simple, almost like a kind of a, a looping white noise type of sound, which didn't do anything else. But within within Chris's tool, we have the, we have the option, as Bob said, about having pitch bends through time. So allow, that allowed us to do rather than going or, or quietly when it was allowed to go down. As far as we got, you go. I'm never going to do that sound again on a podcast ever. But uh, <coughs> it's allowed you to effectively using that one very small sound allowed us to uh, effectively create the sound of how how it would sound as you're going further without using any extra RAM. So a lot of this originally was designed to uh, allow us to overcome the limitations of the RAM that we had. But as Bob said, what ended up we do ended up doing it became more of a creative tool because Chris took it and went, I'll do all this, I'll do that and that. And that's when it became like, oh, we could try that, or we could try this, we could try that. And that's how it sort of ended up developing as it was. And um, I think what's interesting about that, uh, you go back to work you know, you've you've worked with the Amiga. Uh, the first proper computer I had was a Commodore 64. You mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned before about wind, and um, I remember the intro to The Last Ninja 3. Um, you know, that's quite quite a cinematic intro uh, where, well, it's supposed to be the sound of wind, and as you say, it was just an, a noise channel. But it just goes to show that working within those limits, there's there's almost, there's still a solution there. Um, and, um, you know, do you think that it almost sort of forced a creative spark 
you know, a, a, a kind of means for Chris to come in and provide that sort of tool for you. I think it's one of those things where the limitations themselves became a creative stunt, became themselves a how do we overcome these limitations. I also started on the Commodore 64 and three channels, very simple writing music and future composer, almost a hexadecimal. It was very, very, very limited about that. And in fact, one of the reasons why I was, one of the reasons which was drew me to writing music for games in the first place was because I had such reverence for uh, the the kind of the what I like to think of the the heroes of the Commodore sixty four music, you Rob Hubbard, your Martin Gore, your David David Whitaker, and your Ben DeGlesias, because they took uh, which was <clears throat> effectively a very limited, uh, but at the time much more advanced than the other competitors, but the limited sound capabilities on Commodore sixty four, and they they produced what I like to think of was more, in more symphonic works. They did such creative, clever things to try and make three channels sound a hell of a lot more than they did. One of the, one of the tricks uh, they did, which I'm sure you'll be aware of, was how to make a chord sound on a Commodore 64 when you've got three channels. They, uh, I forget who exactly pioneered it, but the, uh, the notion of having one sound, which would go one, one, using one channel, but very massively quick arpeggios. So rather than going, like really, really, really quickly, so you can effectively, and you, and you again, you, you come that up and up and down in volume, which allows you to sort of create the effect of a chord, but only using one sound, only using one of the three channels. So yeah, so those kind of techniques, I think, led themselves to the Amiga and the consoles and so on and so forth. Yeah, so these guys, then, so composers and designers these days, they've got it so easy. They've got none of these limitations at all to deal with. <coughs> I think the key thing to to bear in mind is that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. And, you know, when you have such limited resources, um, you just have to be creative about how you're going to use them and put them to work for you. And, you know, this this was one way that that we well started with our idea and and it ended up being so much more courtesy of Chris Sorrell. So for the second time in this interview, I'll say the man's a legend.
legend he is. Um, now, uh, I'm going to, uh, well, sort of fast forward a bit. Um, I'm going to buy, bypass Medieval 2. Not that I want to. Um, but uh, what interests me is the um, PSP version, uh, Medieval Resurrection. Now, you migrated over from synth-based orchestral sounds to yes. uh, a proper orchestra. Um, there was more of a budget this time. Uh, now, what I'm interested in is that you had more to play with in terms of sound RAM and so on. Um, but it's the internal speaker that interests me uh, the most. Now, I conducted an interview of sorts with someone who helped... Uh, well, he was part of a team who helped put Outrun 2006 Coast to Coast to the PSP. And he said that to get the audio sounding mm-hmm. okay um, through the speaker, they had to introduce uh, sort of new frequencies and use tools... Uh, to eke out as much as they could uh, from that little speaker. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how did you approach that game with that speaker in mind, uh, knowing that there's the potential for people to, instead of using headphones, uh, to be listening to it through the speaker? I I think the assumption right from the get-go was that people were going to predominantly be listening to to the sound on on headphones. I mean, that's what we wanted. because it, you know, it was always going to give a better result than than playing on that small speaker. Um, I mean, there wasn't an awful lot that we could do. I mean, I'm I'm guessing from what you've just said there that they were using things like um, oral exciters and things like that um, to try and um, generate frequencies that weren't necessarily there. I mean, we we didn't do any of that kind of stuff because they themselves can create um, artifacts, and um, if you do something like that and you pander to the to the speaker itself you also potentially run the risk of of then affecting the the headphone mix and so really you just have to kind of take a, a middle line do the best that you can know that the quality is not going to be so good on such a small speaker as that um and and shoot for the stars when it comes to the headphone mix and hope that it, everybody's going to go for that i think there was another aspect of it i remember testing it on both the internal speaker and on the headphones. And of course, you get much different fidelity. But actually, it was funny because it was around the same time we were mucking around with own, working on some mobile phone stuff, some ringtones and so forth. And we learned from the process of doing that how much, obviously, the, the lower frequency was. Most importantly, you lose all the bass. There's pretty much absolutely zero bass from those speakers. So any low, rumbly-type sounds, you're just going to get, well, if anything, you're going to get a crackle but you're not going to get anything else which resembles any sort of low. So from that perspective, it was more of a case of making sure that your frequency ranges of your sounds were more towards the upper end, simply because you wanted to make sure that they would come out on that speaker. But yeah, as Bob said, we generally pretty much made the game for a um, for a headphone mix as opposed to making it work particularly well on... Um, on on uh, just on the internal speakers, largely because it, it didn't sound very good. I mean, for me, it was the irony. It was the irony we were all ironised that uh, we'd we'd wanted a live orchestra for Medieval One. That was ever never going to happen because it was just far too early in the game. And we'd up we'd up we upped our processes and improved our synthetic orchestra writing for Medieval Two. Again, pushing for the live orchestra. Again, it wasn't quite ready for it. Wasn't quite ready budget. Everything else weren't quite there. But of course, uh, but what what helped us is that two years prior to working on Medieval PSP, we'd uh, we'd worked on a game called Primal, which was Chris Soul's follow up to um, to Medieval, and spent however many months 
uh, but actually at that point can uh, managing to persuade Sony that there was the only real way forward was indeed going to have to be a live live orchestra, and they did indeed agree. So from that perspective, then mo- going to the uh, doing the PSP version, it was a much easier process because we'd already gone through those 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 uh, those discussions, and they were already they'd they'd already been uh, <coughs> already seen the benefits of the results. So from that perspective, it was easier. But for me, there was a certain irony that you finally get. We had I think it's still I think to date it's still our biggest. Uh, our biggest band. We had an, uh, I think one of the sessions had an 86-piece orchestra and a 48-piece choir. And uh, yes, it was coming out of speakers the size of my iPhone. So there really was the irony was definitely not lost. But I mean, I, I don't. In fact, I think actually I'm not sure. Do you remember uh, Bob? If Gareth asked about whether we should do a different mix for um, the uh, the music on uh, on for headphones, I can't entirely remember whether we did a different mix of that or not. I, I can't remember either, to be honest. I mean, I do know one thing that you always will. Yeah, I mean, just as part of the basic mixing process, and regardless of the PSP speaker and it being mono, you would always still check all of, all of your mixes in mono to make sure there isn't any phase canceling cancellation going on and and that kind of stuff and things dropping out. Um, and certainly, you know, that occurred with with the guys that, that we've got a very good team of people that work with us. And, um, you know, they they would have applied all of those processes anyway. Um, but I mean, other than that, there wasn't really much that we felt that we could do without potentially compromising the headphone mix. PSP wasn't mono, by the way, it was stereo. <coughs> it had two little mini speakers. So, um, but yeah, I would say, apart from that, it was definitely a case of just making sure that the, you kind of favoured the upper frequencies. But other than that, I don't think we did anything else specifically. We just made, had to make sure it all sounded as, as good as it could do on that without just simply by just testing it, take headphones off, try it without and try it within and see how it sounded. Unfortunately, for the most part, it didn't sound a million times worse. Uh, obviously, as you said, we lost a lot of bass, but apart from that, it was pretty much, uh, the experience wasn't too different.
Um, now, you mentioned about the orchestra and how Sony didn't initially think the time was right to invest in such a thing. Uh, you mentioned that there were lots of internal discussions in the years leading up to that. So what was the clincher? Uh, did you record something and present it to them, you know, saying, look, this is what we'd like to do uh, going forward? Um, so what convinced them? I think actually it was... It was actually, it was, I think it was actually, think, it was actually thinking outside the box, because uh, at the time we knew a couple of people who had done some live orchestral recordings. Richard Jack's done it with a, a game called Headhunter, and uh, I forgot his name now. And it was um, a guy in uh, Sony Liverpool had also done. Uh, sorry, Sony Leeds had done done something. I think it was a game called Blast. I think it was Blast Radio did an orchestral. And I remember asking them all, "How did you get the budget to do it?" And <clears throat> But we were in the same boat. What did we do? Because our, 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 our mock-ups, our synthesised demos, were sounding more and more realistic. We'd moved on from better samples, gone on to hardest recording, hardest-based um, streaming. So our samples were sounding, our demos were sounding a hell of a lot more realistic. But so what do you do? What is the, what is the way to do it? I mean, I think one of the obvious way of doing it was to get a before and after. You can go, here's the... Here's the synthesized version of the tune. Here's the live version. Wow, doesn't that sound so much better? And then you do that. But then apart from that, we didn't really have much in the way of doing it. And at the time, Sony's offices were in great shelf and their meeting room was actually was the only one of the rooms which didn't have air conditioning. So the thought of sitting in a, a non-air-conditioned sweating meeting room in the height of summer playing the before and afters wasn't, wasn't particularly, uh, uh, I don't think, particularly appealing idea. But what the real clincher was that... Uh, Bob was friends, uh, originally his housemate, uh, was a guy called Michael Price. you want to take over from here, Bob? Yes. Um, Michael was recording at Abbey Road. Um, it was his first feature film, actually, at the time. And um, we'd never been down there. And he, he kind of just said, would you, like, would you guys like to come down and hang out? And um, Barn and I discussed it. Of course, like the, no question, we were going to go down there and, and enjoy the experience of being in that hallowed recording venue but um we we both sort of said maybe this is an opportunity maybe we could get um a couple of guys from sony to to come along see the process and see if, see if that could have some kind of influence on their decision to record an orchestra um just experiencing it just being in that in that space i mean i don't know how hopeful we were you know <laughs> i i i I knew they'd probably enjoy the experience. I, I, don't, I don't know whether we were fully convinced that they were gonna, it was gonna turn things around. But I mean, in fact, that's exactly what happened. We got um, Phil Harrison came down, who was the vice president of, of development in ski at the time, and and I guess you know it's that it's that lure of Abbey Road again. You know, I mean, Phil was a very busy guy at the time, but I think he kind of enjoyed the the prospect of of hanging out there too. So. Um, he came down and uh, Rob Parkin, the studio head at Sony Cambridge, also came down. And we stood in the control room for, I don't know, maybe 30 to 60 minutes and just watched this recording process. And it wasn't a big, it was only a string section, I seem to remember, and it wasn't huge. But, I mean, it just sounded really impressive. I mean, Michael's music's beautiful. Michael's gone on to, to write the music for Sherlock and... Um, uh, Unforgotten on TV and uh, the new uh, Dracula, which is coming out. So he's 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 gone on to to do some very very impressive stuff himself. But I mean the the score was wonderful that he'd done then. And um, I just remember Phil Harrison invited us to go into the bar at Abbey Road um, after the recording, and he wanted to talk some numbers. 
and luckily Barn had done all of his homework prior to that. Um, the guy that we, the fixer that we worked with in Prague, just happened to live down the road from us. Barn had found him on Google and had a conversation with him and got at least fleshed out some rough numbers so that we we had a pretty good idea of what this was going to cost. It was something we'd never done before. And um, so, you know, we ran the numbers by, by Phil at that time and away they went to mull it all over. And um, it took a while. There's, you know, it was still a decision to be made. Um, but, yeah, they, they came back with a, with a big fact. You yes. know, I can actually even remember what those figures were. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to give them the choice. So I said, we either record it in uh, the, the, the three places to record orchestras at that, well, most complex. We either to record it in London, which people generally regarded was the best, but also the most expensive. The next option we had was to go and record it in LA, and LA with those musicians over there. And the third option was to go and record it in uh, Prague, which ended up, ended up we're doing. And it, was actually, it was pretty much an equal split between the three of them. I think uh, London was about 90k. Uh, LA was 60k and Prague was about 30. It turned out to be a little bit more than that, but but because we'd never done this before, this was completely new to us. Unfortunately, Michael Price, uh, Bob's housemate, was in, was not only was he instrumental in helping us secure the deal by letting us be there, he was also very good at helping us guide through the, guiding us through the process. He said, "Guys, you need a posse." I was saying, "What kind of posse?" Because we were used. That's the thing as well. But working in house and then working as freelancers in games, you were so used to doing everything yourself. It was just part and parcel of it. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, that, that he was... I mean, Barnes always been very, very organised when it when it comes to things like this. And so I think we knew, you know, in general, pe- people don't generally go for the, more, the most expensive option. And at the same time, uh, you know, this was Sony. This was a, this was a big game. They, they also don't necessarily want to go on the, you know, the very cheapest option. So, you know, we, we tried to give sort of a range of options, um, put them in front of them and, and you know, say, what do you think to these? But of course, if, if you throw the, the London recording into the mix, which is going to be, you know, very, very expensive, you know, they're not going to go for that. But if they see that as a, as a kind of a benchmark for, right, if you did it in London, it's going to be this, maybe five times higher than what it would cost in Prague, then, um, you know, it, suddenly it makes the Prague numbers a bit more palatable. But that that was the process, and um, and it, you know, luckily that ship came home for us, and um, off we went. Yeah, because if I remember right, that was quite a crucial time for the PSP as well, wasn't it? Uh, Sony wanted to establish some prominence in the handheld market, and they, well, they clearly wanted some big games to go along with it. Um, surely there must have been some driving factor there as well. That you know they wanted to blow people away with the tech. Uh, I mean, well, the, the PSP was an impressive piece of kit to behold back then, um, especially in the sound department. Uh, you know, they were showcasing UMDs, the fact that exactly, you could watch, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. watch a movie on the go and so on. Um, but to have a game with the soundtrack of that mm-hmm. magnitude and that sophistication, exactly. you know, um, must have been you know, quite yeah. something. And it puts a, a marker out there for everyone saying, look, you know, maybe this is just a handheld console, but, you know, that the, at the end of the day, you know, we're still putting production value into this. And, you know, we're going the extra mile to make these games sound great. And, you know, I mean, th- things had really come on. I mean, when you think that 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 uh, the PSP was was basically we had we had more resources available to us on that than we did on the PS1. It was crazy. So so, you know, it's still relatively a, a luxury for us. 
you know that suddenly there's more sound around us you know we, it's we're capable of doing so much more even then i've just got this uh image of you uh, just going to a bar after watching an orchestra and you know sit down with <laughs> phil harrison to talk numbers <laughs> just quite an image and the weird thing was, and I think just I just sat with one of the heads of Sony, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a nice hours. And in fact, I should remember actually the we'd been there that way. In fact, it wasn't our first time to the Abbey, Abbey Road. We'd been there before, a few months before, when uh, we were, I think we were in London for some particular do. And Michael again, who was working there, because not only did he do his own film score at the time, he was he was music editing Lord of the Rings. So he said to us, "Pop in and say hello." And I remember sitting sitting in the same bar, chatting to Howard Shaw about the the additional music he wrote for the because uh, he was there recording the additional music for Fellowship of the Ring and I was sitting there thinking oh my god this is something I would like to pinch myself I think we only left Sony and went freelance probably what a few months before then and now we're sitting in Abbey Road this is a very strange place to be
just uh, quickly on the um, topic of medieval uh, resurrection as well. And now, of course, people who have played uh, the series know that um, Tom Baker is the voice of death. And um, yeah, now, did you get to meet him at all? Yes. Uh, did Did you get to sit in on the recording sessions as well? Um, yes. I mean, I mean, we we personally didn't, but I mean, we on medieval two. I attended all of the voice recordings for that and Medieval One, actually. And I went along with Jason Wilson. And so we, we met all of the, the voiceover guys there. And, um, you know, we were giving them um, instruction on what the voices should be like and what kind of personalities and suggestions on, on sort of the way it could be delivered. I just re- what, Actually, the standout voice for me, I always remember, was, uh, was Louis Soto, who... Um, he did. I, I can't remember how many voices, but they were. I was going to say he did a lot, didn't he? Yeah, it, it, they. He did so, and they were so varied. It, it to me, it didn't sound like it was the same person on any of those voices. Just remarkable. I really learned the the skills of a voiceover artist during those during that process to see just how versatile they have to be and throw any accent at you. You know, do do all sorts of all sorts of clever things. It's. I mean, it really was quite remarkable, actually. As one of the real advantages, actually, of being in-house audio team, um, as we were when we did Medieval 1 and 2, is that you, you cover all as- facets of audio delivery uh, for a project. And it's such a great grounding, because now when we work in movies or on TV, we, you know, it gives us a bit of an edge to, to be thinking about what the sound design might be doing, or you know, how can we make space for the dialogue because the dialogue is king on a movie in particular. I mean, you've, you've got to hear all of the words because that's the story. So, you know, it's it's always given us such a great grounding and, uh, you know, something that I think we'll both be eternally grateful for. It's funny. For me, I think uh, if I ever had the chance to have Tom Baker in a game, you know, like, <laughs> sort of what would you like me to do? I'd be like, well, um, be Tom Baker? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. But you know the interesting thing is that is that the voice that he ended up doing for for death um, was, you know, when you when you fast forward then I don't know how many years and you get Little Britain, it's very very similar in style and delivery to to the voice that he did for for Little Britain. I mean I know that the subject matter was all very different, but but actually it's you know there was there were a lot of parallels I thought between those two. So, um, moving on finally to, of course, where we are now, Medieval PS4. Um, now, I'm interested to learn uh, how long, well, how long the process was, um, really, from when it was first originally decided that the project was going to go ahead, and to you guys going back to then rescore, um, and then getting the final recordings with the orchestra. I'm just interested to know sort of how long that process took uh, overall. God, I'm just trying to think when we actually started. It was something like um, October, October last year. Um, so probably the main score preparation was sort of a three-month period. Um, we recorded um, the orchestral cues uh, on the new stuff anyway. It was recorded in early, well, mid-January um, this year. Um, and then there was there was a very long process of implementation. I, mean, I have to say that the Sony team in the U.S. were were unbelievable because they they had I mean they've they've worked on so many interactive scores. They they had lots and lots of very clear ideas about how they wanted the music to go in, and um, we had discussions and we had our own suggestions. But right from the get go, I mean, because of their experience, they they knew you know th- this will work. 
that won't work. Um, you know, we we probably in terms of interactivity. You know, we we're thinking about trying to tie it into the gameplay, but they they sort of clearly recommended right from right from day one. If you start doing that, it could it could very quickly get irritating. So so we wrote this this layer of um, short um, staccato notes on on the strings to just to add a little bit of drive and and danger to the tracks. And they liked the idea, but they didn't want to tie it into gameplay. What what we thought was it could it could be for you know a number of bad guys. When you get ten bad guys or something around you, then that could come in just to give you that extra sense of danger and uh, drive. Um, but but in the end, they said let's do it, but let's not tie it to that. Let's just have it as an additional element across all of the tracks. And and that was a great idea because it meant that. Everything was new to some degree, even even if even if it wasn't a new orchestral recording, this additional layer would would always be added to pretty much everything. Um, so that that was that was a great idea, and and those guys helped to to really steer the ship in terms of how the interactivity side of it would work, and also how we should go about the recording process in in Prague, because we we had. You know, separate brass strings and woodwind session, and then subdivided a lot of the cues into long legato passages of you know melodies and so on, and the shorter detached notes, which which tend to be more accompaniments, um, to record all of those elements separately, so that again they would have complete control over that when they came to the implementation side. I mean, with with the old cues that were recorded from two thousand and four. 2005 uh, for the PSP version those those we didn't have that that level of control over so instead what we did was we did um, MIDI mock-ups of all those tracks matched to those tracks and um, we we also gave them like cut down versions of those tracks so it's it's a it's a big blend of, of live orchestral music but also st still a fair amount of, of synth elements in there sample based elements um throughout the entire score but it just gives it um you know some some extra shelf life if you like
this uh, this notion of interactivity uh, it's you know it is something that gets talked about a lot especially as games get more sophisticated along with the hardware uh, you've mentioned before about uh, stems and uh, having layers uh, with the music uh, that build up as a level or scene gets gets more intense you know uh, i'm i'm fascinated by that sort of thing but in terms of importing the score uh, into the game itself are you heavily involved with with that side of things after the the score's been completed um or you know was it the team in america a group of sound coders and and so on well we we did default to them pre- uh, predominantly um because because of their experience because um you know that well they were going to handle all the mix anyway so that they were going to have everything available their side so it was very much agreed from the beginning that they were going to be um, handling that process but we wanted to be involved i mean we, we don't tend to just wash our hands of it once once the composition side, side is is finished there's still an awful lot of interpretation to it to to be done and the, the score could really fall down if if you don't put it in well um you know it's 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 like having a very poor mix on a, on a film you know if, if you can do a great job on producing the music but you know if it doesn't sound good against the picture then then you know you you're only halfway there aren't you so um so we wanted to be involved and we said right from the beginning that we that we'd like to go and visit them and um at least towards the end of the process go through the game and have some input on on where the music you know placement of the music uh, choice of uh, the music placement and and also how it's gone in i mean on the whole it was just mostly we were saying Mon- monty you've done a wonderful job <laughs> move on um, but we you know we had a few little pointers that, that and you know we had a few suggestions which they took on board it was very much a collaborative process then at, at the end and um, you know they they were definitely open-minded to to take on board some of our our suggestions and and likewise you know from our side we we had you know we listened to them um because they had so much experience with doing that i think one of the things which helped with this particular project is that i think one of the reasons why medieval has 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 uh has been we, we love writing writing for it it's because the music genuinely is quite slow it's because when we first did medieval one and medieval two and medieval previous speed to that point the music wasn't interactive it didn't reflect in any way, shape, or form what was happening on screen. The closest we could get was once you jumped to, uh, say, a boss fight, you'd have boss music. But during the course of a stand, a level, you could be enjoying the pretty scenery and just not really having any interaction with anything else, or you could be just completely swamped with zombies, or so on and so forth. But but the music wouldn't change because they didn't know that was something we could do that. So we we had to sort of find a sort of a sort of a middle ground tempo wise speed wise which sort of would help match a few of these things so which is what we like doing it because we quite like writing slow, slow music but the problem is as Bob described it didn't lend itself to more uh active scenes as you as 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 Dan got more more you know as the situation got more more tense the battles got more involved the music didn't change for that so Bob's great idea of adding this staccato layer of um of strings helped greatly because you could have a slow tempo and you have a, and have a, it's like I mean and boom boom 
boom, boom. But you have this double layer, uh, sorry, the double tempo layer of strings, boom, 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 which you can play underneath. We added to added to that, we had a percussion layer on every single uh, cue as well. Largely, it was involving me playing a variety of different sort of uh, percussion instruments, just just to get a bit of a, an acoustic feel. Sometimes a tambourine, sometimes kind of a, if you look at drums, for the same reason, have a little bit of rhythm going over these things. So uh, then, but then the became became a case of where do we do this change? As Bob decided, uh, they all they already discussed doing it uh, when you were swamped by enemies. But as Monty said, this would come in and out too often; it would become too of a, too much of a distraction. So we ended up, what we ended up doing is actually we sort of positing certain areas of each of the levels where things got where things got more intense. Because that's another thing as well. So when when we first did this, due to the limitations of the hardware, the software, and everything else, we could basically do about the tunes. This, we had about room on the disc to do about two two and a half minute tunes, which isn't particularly long. And because we knew we couldn't get them to seamlessly loop. So it would always be a slight click between the end of them. You end up start you start the tune low, you have the tune kind of rise to the highest point in the middle of the tune, and then it end low. So when the so the looping point would hopefully be reasonably uh, unnoticeable. But that's great. But if the level took roughly say ten minutes to complete, you'd be hearing the same tune four times. Which isn't particularly great. And one of the things I always I've always found is the bane of any sort of games composer's life is the bane of repetition. So what we could do here was instead, because we knew that they wanted us to keep the original tunes not quite intact, but at least uh, allude you know, very closely to what the original tunes were, because we knew that the fans of the original games wanted to hear that, we couldn't move too far away from what was written originally. All we could do is kind of uh, enhance it, add layers to it and change it around. So what we could do is then we could choose sections of the first bit of the music and then that would become and adding all uh, adding our various additional bits. Sometimes I even added solos and infringements, so that you, the first sort of few minutes of the level, you would only hear portion of the tune, po po you know, a, a small portion of the overall tune. As you got as you reached a sort of a mid mid level checkpoint, you would have oh now now we're going to know. And then at that point, then you could start to, to explore and uh, introduce different other other elements other elements to it. And then again, as you went throughout uh, to the third, uh, maybe even the third time around. You could actually get more and more intense. So again, as you walk towards the end of the level, so it felt like there was actual musical progression. So right, and so in fact, we ended up what we do end up doing is sort of taking these two two and a half minute uh, tunes and extending them with such different uh, little levels, and became we could almost I think it was around we roughly worked it out it was about ten minutes of uh, of material which which would be which you could then choose to play over the course of the level which all those in many cases matched the kind of duration of someone completing the level so it felt from that perspective that the music progressed as you did which is something which we always wanted to do on the PS1 and PS2 but obviously we're never able to do but thank you PS4 for allowing us to do it now <laughs> now also I was just going to uh, touch on that actually uh, if I remember rightly uh, you both said that the first track that you demoed of Medieval was the graveyard theme. Um, is that correct? Yes. So, given that you've um, you know, gone through the series together, um, do, do you think that the evolution of that theme, in particular, you know, th those tracks between the games, they almost uh, act as timestamps in your career. Um, I mean, are, are you able to look, up, look back upon them, put them side by side and think, you know, wow, and not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of yourselves and, and how you've grown as composers and, and things like that. It, yeah, I mean, it, it does work both ways, I have to say, with that. 
because um, sometimes, you know, as time goes on and the more you work as a composer, the, the less creative you feel you're being. And and the reason for that is that, you know, you when you, when you come into it all fresh-faced and, you know, a uh, little bit green around the gills, let's say, you know, the... The, there's no precedent been set and you just you just you know you just get straight to it and you you start composing and of course you get better over time I mean, I'd, be, I'd be devastated if I didn't feel like you know we'd progressed over time but then at the same t at the same time I feel like we kind of rehash things sometimes or I feel like you know like personally that there are certain chord progressions that you find yourself going to or you know cer certain things that, that you tend to do over and over and I guess that that also forms part of your sound and the thing that makes you you so it's not entirely undesirable, but at the same time, you know, you start questioning yourself as you, as as you get older and more experienced. You you question just how fresh and new you're being, as as a result of that. You know, it's it's a real double-edged sword. But I, I mean, you know, we when we look back on the original score of Medieval, I mean, there were definitely pieces that that we felt were, were weak and that we'd certainly improved and raised our game in terms of orchestration, perhaps in terms of, um, you know, some of, some of the creative choices that, that we make along the way. Um, so, uh, yes, it's it's nice then to see that and think this is a bit basic, you know, when we look at one or two of the tunes on Medieval and we look at it now and, and think, I, you know, I wouldn't be doing it like that. And that feels good because because you think, well, you know, I, I definitely have improved. Um, but like I say, there's this, you know, we're all human beings. We're not robots. And, um, you know, there's always that element of doubt at the same time. You think, well, am I being original? <laughs> you know, So a real double-edged sword for me. Right then. Well, uh, the uh, I guess the, the last thing uh, that uh, I wanted to ask you both was, uh, was just quite simple really uh, which composers uh, do you guys admire who you know who do you love well john williams michael giacchino alan silvestri all the classics i would say thomas newman for me i'd i'd have to say that and i've always loved james newton howard um i, I sixth sense is one of my favorite films and there's so many sort of little clever things that he does in that score that most people probably don't notice but just adding and subtracting a beat here and there that that makes you lose sense of where the bar line is. It's very subtle, but it's un, but it's unsettling, which is exactly what he wants to achieve. I think those guys are very clever. I'd also say that uh, Hans Zimmer in his day has done some fantastic work. I would say that he's a, as a, as a, he's managed to keep ahead of the game and just continues to progress the sound of film music for the last uh, 20, 30 years. So hats off to him for doing that as well. Right, well, it's been um, <laughs> it's been an absolute thrill uh, talking to you both, um, and thank you so much uh, for your time. Absolute tonight. pleasure. It's, uh, it's been amazing. You're very welcome. 